Good morning, church. It's good to see you on this day the Lord has given us to be together. I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses. As you make your way there, I've had a few people ask me about giving envelopes lately. And so if you are one of those that are interested or wanting to know what happened to your giving envelopes, they disappeared. Uh, we are not using the normal giving tithing envelopes that we have in the past, but we do have, if you want to continue using a giving envelope, they are available out in the Ministry Connection. You can just grab a stack, a handful, and take them with you and use them like you have been using your old ones. If you, they're not needed. If you don't want to use a giving envelope, you don't have to use that. Most people aren't. We recommend you give online. You can give normally like we do on Sunday mornings. So there's a variety of different ways to give. But if you are one of those that want a giving envelope, please help yourself to those out there in the ministry connection. Take as many as you want, and you can use those uh, as you will. All right? Luke chapter 4. Let's look at this text together. Let's dive right in here. These are the words inspired by the Holy Spirit. We begin reading in verse 1 of Luke chapter 4. This is what we read. And Jesus... Full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him, up to the, uh, took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray together. Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears to receive your word this morning? Would you help us understand this pivotal moment in Jesus' life and ministry as he prepares to begin his earthly ministry and goes through this time of testing and temptation? Would you show us, Lord, the importance of this and how it would impact us this day? We ask for your help now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at one point in my early teenage life, I was enamored with being a Navy SEAL. Now, quick life update. That didn't happen. I know, I know it's a shocker to most of you, but uh, I didn't make the SEALs. It never happened. Um, but I was always captivated, and still somewhat today, and still always interested in just, uh, just the the military aspect of, of what they do and, and, and their training. They're some of the best trained and equipped military personnel in the world. The training they go through, most people 
would not be able to endure. In fact, less than 20% typically in a typical class make it to the end of their training. And so it's a, a lot of folks that end up dropping out. And it all begins with what's called Basic Underwater Demolition School there in uh, Coronado, California. It's a, about a 24-week intensive training that's only the beginning of their training. But they begin there with BUDS, this, this 24-week school that uh, really is quite notorious. And, it, and the point of that training is not only to teach them discipline and, and those kinds of things, but one of the intentions of that training is to weed out the weak and make sure that only those who are not just physically able but mentally capable of going on are those that do. And so, it's a, again, many folks that end up dropping out of these classes. Two of the most notorious features of BUDS training, there for the SEALs, uh, there are several things that you could point out, but two of which are called, one is called the bell. And the second aspect is called hell week. And I'll just kind of explain those for a second. The bell is this brass bell from a ship that sits in the training area. And when a student reaches the breaking point, all he has to do is drag himself to the bell, ring it three times as an indicator of volunteering out. It's a fancy way of saying quitting. That's what they do. So when you're done, you've had enough, you go ring the bell three times and you're done. You go back to whatever it was you were doing in the Navy at that point. But around the fifth or sixth weeks of BUDS training is this week notoriously referred to as Hell Week. During this week, students participate in about five and a half days or so of continuous, continuous training with only a maximum of four hours of sleep during that week. It's a, it's a week of unimaginable intensity designed to get to as many to quit as possible. Their, their goal during that week is to get the week out so that you will ring the bell and be done. As I thought about the training that the seals go through, I thought about this temptation here in Luke chapter 4, the testing that Jesus endured. It's very different, obviously. But if I was looking at this text and I was thinking, what is it that the devil is trying to accomplish here over these 40 days? It was as if Satan was doing all he could do to get Jesus to ring the bell, to call it quits, to be done, so that Satan could have his own, own, own glory. Well, the testing that Jesus would endure in the wilderness would be Indeed, a statement, a further confirmation of who he is and who he was, that he was in fact the son of God, fully capable, fully sufficient of taking on the ministry that he had been given by the Father. In fact, if you were to look at chapter four and in the previous chapter, back in chapter three, you would see several aspects of what Luke is doing here. He's, he's really pointing us to the legitimacy of Jesus and his ministry. In fact, if you go back to his baptism, his baptism is, in fact, recognizing that he is the anointed one, the one with which whom the Father is well pleased. So he's the anointed one. His genealogy that Jeremy preached last week demonstrates that he is the promised one, that you can trace his lineage all the way back to Adam. And today, when we look at his testing and temptation in the wilderness, we see that he is the triumphant one. And so you put all these together, and Luke is right here at the very beginning of his ministry saying Jesus is the legitimate Savior. He is the one, the, full, the fully sufficient one that came to bring redemption to his people. And today as we look at this testing and this time of trial in the wilderness for Jesus, we're going to see that Jesus demonstrates his triumph over temptation. And as he does so, that he is the one through whom we must entrust ourselves for our redemption and our hope. He is the victorious savior. He is the one that triumphs over evil. 
So I want us to look at that this morning and really two main points that we're going to draw from this text today. What is Jesus' temptation? What does his trial here in the wilderness teach us about him that should lead us to trust him? What is it that Jesus' temptation teaches us about him that should lead us to trust him? Two observations that we see here in the text. First of all, we see that he fully trusts God's providence. He trusts God's providence. If you look at verses one and two, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Notice there it says after his baptism, we know that the Spirit descended upon him and now he's full of the Spirit and he's being led by the Spirit to the wilderness where he would spend these 40 days. We, again, if you were to look at the Gospel of Mark, if you were to look at parallel accounts to the temptation, Mark's Gospel uh, says that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus and immediately drove him to the wilderness. The Spirit drives him to the wilderness. And so this trial in the wilderness was not some random event that Jesus was walking down some dirt path and all of a sudden he finds himself in the wilderness and all of a sudden out of nowhere, unbeknownst to him, he's being tried and tempted by the devil. It's not an accident that this happened. The Spirit of God who filled Jesus and led Jesus drove him to this point in his life where he was being tested. God, by the Holy Spirit, puts him there. See, the presence and role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life is a crucial one. We can see as Jesus begins his earthly ministry that the impulse that guided Jesus was a spiritual one, namely the Holy Spirit. It's also important to see that this spiritual showdown in the wilderness was was not initiated by the devil was initiated by the Holy Spirit who drives him there, who puts him there by the providence of God. And so Jesus, we find himself here as he's he's hungry, it tells us, and he's fasting. We know that later he's he's fasting there in the the wilderness and he's spending time in a very spiritual, much a spiritual retreat put there by the Holy Spirit. And now he's being tested by the devil. While this is going on, Jesus entrusts himself to God's providence in his life. And I think that really the setting that we're seeing here in the first two verses teach us something very sobering. Following the will of God will at times put us in the midst of spiritually challenging circumstances. Jesus is in the wilderness fasting. Fasting is a discipline we're called to engage in as a way to temporarily deprive ourselves of basic needs so that we can remember our, ultimately, our ultimate dependence on the Lord. And it's in the midst of that that Satan comes now to tempt Jesus. Friends, I think if anything, this is just a reminder to us that faithfully following the Lord, doing exactly what the Lord has called us to, does not mean that we will be removed from significant trials and temptations and difficulties in our life. Deep sorrow and trials are not automatic indicators that we are doing something wrong. Jesus was doing everything right as he would throughout the course of his life in ministry and he finds himself here at the beginning of his ministry in a very serious trial. 
The important truth is that we keep our focus on the Holy Spirit in the midst of such trials, trusting that God is always after our good. See, Jesus was not attempting to go about his life without following the Spirit's lead. Indeed, his entire ministry, his entire life would be a Spirit-led ministry, a Spirit-led life. It's a reminder to us that we must trust the providence of God and that God's work must be done in God's strength and that this Holy Spirit is present to give guidance that we need. And it may very well be that some of you right now are enduring significant spiritual trials, spiritual battles, and in the midst of that battle, you're wondering, have I done something wrong? Friends, we, don't, we, we shouldn't think that we were, we, whenever we're enduring a set of trials that it necessarily is because we've done something wrong. It may be, but it doesn't automatically mean that we are in this situation because we've done something wrong. We have the tendency to think that if we strive to be faithful to God, that our problems will somehow just disappear. That's a false teaching of the prosperity gospel. That's not at all what the Bible teaches us. In fact, you see it modeled right here in the life and ministry of Jesus that he is enduring some of the most difficult challenges of his life as he's fasting and spending time with God. Friends, we see that Jesus entrusts himself to the providence of God, and that's going to be evident all the way through this text. So he entrusts himself to the providence of God, but notice number two, he endures God's test. You see this in the rest of the passage that we're going to look at this morning, verses 3 through 13. Now, establish the, the case based on Mark's gospel and certainly what we see here in Luke, being full of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, that Jesus was there in the wilderness intentionally by the work of God. And what happens there is of significant importance to us. In fact, there are a couple of things that we should take away about Jesus that are confirmed of him in the midst of this trial in the wilderness, this testing, testing from God, temptation from Satan. Number one, he is established here as the true son. Look at verse three. The devil comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, I just want us to stop there for a moment. He says it again in verse 9. Um, if you are the son of God, then, then do something. Make yourself bread. Throw yourself down. You'll have angels come rescue you. Remember this phrase, son of God. It's an important phrase. And there are a few observations I, need to, I think we should do well to think through. In fact, if you were to go back to chapter 3, verse 38, at the end of the genealogy there, where Luke is recounting the the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam. It says there at the end of verse 38, the son of Adam, the son of God. Son of Adam, the son of God. And we know that throughout Scripture, Jesus and Adam are often contrasted. They're they're often compared and contrasted because of who they are. Jesus often referred to as the second Adam. We know that Adam too was tempted, wasn't he? He was tempted in the garden, but Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. We know that Adam failed, whereas Jesus did not. He prevailed. So Jesus here is being presented as the true son who doesn't succumb to Satan's tactics. Satan's saying, if you're the son of God, 
then do something. God's abandoned you here. He's left you here. Make for yourself bread from these stones. So there's one connection that we see, but not only that, it's also interesting that Jesus was in the wilderness, according to verse 2, for 40 days. This was no accident. This was no random number of days. If you were to go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, we know there the people of God, Israel, they're also described as God's son. Verse 22 and 23 reads, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But we also know that Israel, the son of God, in this sense, they also failed in their obedience to God. So Jesus, we see here, Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness, whereas Israel spent 40 years in a different wilderness because of their failure. The number 40 here is quite intentional. It's a number that's used often in the scriptures. Now, I'm not big into all the numerology stuff out there because there's some crazy crazy stuff out there. But right here, this is one of those where it's not crazy, it's very intentional. The number 40 is, is a number that's often used. You, you have the 40 years of wilderness wanderings of the Old Testament people of God, the, the people of the, the Israelites. You have things like 40 lashes that were given that were the most one could receive as forms of punishment. 40 days was the duration of the flood. 40 days were the length of Moses' time on Sinai when he received the commandments from God, the covenant from God. And here the fact that Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness is intentional as it connects him back to the Old Testament people of God, the son of God, Israel, and the son of God, Adam. And it's as if Luke is painting this picture for us here through this temptation, and even through the words of the devil here saying, if you are the son of God, it's as if Luke is saying he is the true son. He is the true Adam. Jesus is the true Israel. He is the true son that comes into the world. And he's going to prove himself to be that through these temptations. So here we see that he is established as the true son. But he's also confirmed as the triumphant son. You see that in the rest of this text. Jesus spends time in the wilderness. We know that Satan shows up and begins to tempt him at some point over this 40, the period of 40 days. Three temptations are highlighted here. First one we see is that Jesus is tempted with provision. You see that in verses three and four. The first temptation we see says in verse three, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now remember, according to verse 2, Jesus was extremely hungry. He'd been there fasting. Now the devil is preying upon that real weakness. He goes in for the stomach here. And in essence, he suggests that Jesus could actually change this hunger situation if he really wanted to. After all, if you're the son of God, you can, become, you can command this stone to become bread. Now I think it's important for us to see that I don't think Satan is questioning whether or not he's the son of God. It's not as if he's denying that Jesus is the son or he's doubtful. I think he's exploiting it in a way to urge Jesus to use his own ability to serve his own ends. 
And then Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where he says, man shall not live by bread alone. This text, if you're wondering, well, is he really connected to the Old Testament people of Israel? Well, right here, I think this text is proof of that because it's sure what's on Jesus' mind. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, which was in the context of Moses recounting God's provision for the nation of Israel during their 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And there God had demonstrated his care and protection during those 40 years by providing the people manna to eat. And Moses was reminding them as they went forward into the promised land that they could trust God. That they could trust the Lord. And Jesus knows that if he was to make for himself food from stone, that he would be acting independently from his father and in denial of his father's care and provision. And so his response, man shall not live by bread alone. He understands that his father is good, that God is good. In fact, that's really what the source of this temptation is. The devil is questioning the goodness of God. And isn't that really the source and root of most temptations, if not all temptations? Certainly what, the, what we find there in the, the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were tempted. It was, a, it was a test. It was a temptation to question the goodness of God. Surely God did not say. Here you find that being the case right here in this text. The goodness of God being called into question and the devil exploiting the the, the, the reality of who Jesus is as the Son of God, saying you can change your circumstances. Just a side note. Think about how often we allow certain comforts to distract us from the priority of God's word and the goodness of God's ways. I think the same temptations lurk for us as well, that we are often calling into question, certainly being tempted to call into question the goodness of God. Jesus is there fasting and trusting his Father, and there wasn't any amount of hunger pain that was about to take him off mission. See, the issue at hand here was whether or not Jesus would remain faithful to God's way. This temptation was an attack upon the goodness of God, and Jesus wasn't buying it. He was tempted with provision, but then we also see in verses five through seven, he's tempted with power. In verse five, we're told Jesus is taken up and shown all the kingdoms of the world. Matthew's account, we're told he's taken to a high mountain. Very well likely that it's some kind of vision or something like that because we know that to to see the the entirety of humanity uh, on one particular point would not be possible. But he's shown here all the kingdoms of the world. And the word world here is not the geographical sphere. He's not looking at Google Maps. It's a word referring to the inhabited world, the the, the world of humanity, the people of all the kingdoms. And as they look at all the kingdoms of the world, Satan makes makes him an offer. He says, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And there's a lot of discussion on whether or not was this a legitimate offer? Could Satan legitimately offer him this authority and this this place, the nations? 
Did Satan truly have that authority? Well, it's certainly true that Satan does possess or did possess some authority. In John, Jesus refers to him in chapter 12, verse 31, as the ruler of this world. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about the God, little g, the God of this world. And so we know that he has some authority over the world and over the nations. And so some, some will say, well, yes, he was, it was a legitimate offer. He had this authority saying, Jesus, you can have this authority. Whereas others say, well, it couldn't have been a legitimate offer because only God can grant this kind of authority. And so there's all this discussion and debate. Well, regardless, think of the offer. The offer that, that he's being given here has to do more with, not authority, but who has that authority and, and, and the, the centrality of worship. If Jesus would join an alliance with Satan, Satan's trying to say, listen, it's as if there would be no need for a cross, no need for suffering. You just bow your knee right now. It's, it's yours. But Jesus knows that the authority that he will be given will come, in fact, from his Father, if you go back to Luke chapter 1, remember just a few chapters back, the angel visits Mary and tells about her son. There in verse 32 and 33 of chapter 1, it says, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So the angel telling Mary about her son is saying, Listen, he's going to have a throne, he's going to be a king. And this kingdom that he will rule will have no end. It's coming from his father. This promise of Jesus' global rule was also promised way back in the Old Testament. If you go to Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2 verse 8 says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. As if the father is speaking now in, in, in view of the son. And it's as if now Satan is coming along very aware of these promises and acts as if he can actually be the one to grant him this authority. The devil is claiming to give Jesus what God had promised him, but with one condition. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. To which Jesus replies, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This verse immediately follows, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it immediately follows the Shema, a passage cited daily by Jews, acknowledges there that worship comes only to God and in service to God. Along with this worship is service. Jesus is in essence saying, there's only one worthy of worship, and I'm with him. So here we see that Jesus is faced with whether or not he would try and seize authority by turning his back on his father and, or wait to receive it as promised. Jesus chooses the latter while affirming God's right place, that he is the one worthy of worship. This temptation for power, I think, is something, certainly something we would all do well to reflect upon from time to time, how easy it is to show a lack of trust in the Lord by trying to seize power either that's not ours to take or intended for us to receive. Jesus is being tempted with that right here. He's, he's saying, listen, Satan's acting as if he's the one that can give him power when only we know that that comes from God as has been promised both in Old and New Testament. So he's tempted with this power, but he's also tempted with this protection. 
See that in verses 9 through 12. Temptation number three, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then notice what Satan does. I don't know if this is the reason why, but Jesus has already quoted some scriptures, so maybe the devil's thinking, well, I'll try the same. So he's going to try his hand at quoting some scripture, and now he quotes Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. It's like, listen, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan actually attempts to use God's word, not as an occasion for Jesus to trust God, but as an occasion to actually test God. He's, he's, he's manipulating the scriptures here, which is a Master technique that the devil often will use to twist the scriptures in a way to call into question God's goodness or to to use it in a way to to deny his rightful place or even to test God. And Jesus responds with a quote again from Deuteronomy chapter 6, this time from verse 16. This text is warning Israel not to put God to the test by failing to trust his position. And he says, quote, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus understands exactly what, what Satan's trying to do. He's, he's manipulating the circumstance to, to actually question God, to test God, and Jesus is not buying it. Jesus remains faithful by believing God's word. He chooses to remain faithful to God's way and not cave to temptation. So in all these temptations, there are three of them here, at least that we know about, revealed for us here. These temptations are calling into question the faithfulness and the goodness and kindness and and the majesty and the centrality of God. And it's as if Satan is doing everything he can to get Jesus to ring the bell. And Jesus does not waver. He chooses to remain faithful to God's way and God's power by the Holy Spirit. And he does not cave. Now we've seen this throughout and we will see this all throughout Jesus' ministry, but the victory right here in the wilderness comes at a very pivotal time in his ministry, at the beginning of his ministry, as if it's a declaration saying to us, to Theophilus first and now to us, that listen, this son that I have sent into the world, he is triumphant. He is the victorious one. You can look to him and you can trust him. Now it's usually here, that many well-meaning folks will often take this temptation and immediately draw an application from it, saying that it serves a good model for us when we face temptation. Just a little reminder for us here. The Bible is first and foremost not about us. Okay, It is about God. And it is about the revelation of Jesus Christ and who he is. It's a dangerous hermeneutic. It's a dangerous way to approach the Bible as if every chapter and verse has immediate direct application in some way to you. I've got to figure out what this means for me. I can tell you what it means for you. I'm about to tell you what it means for you. And it's a lot simpler than you think. Usually here people talk about that Jesus' temptation serves as a model for us when we face temptation. After all, the Bible says that we ought to hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. That's true. 
certainly true that one of the most important tools you can have in the midst of any temptation is a good recall of God's promises and God's word. But I think that that would at best be a secondary application of this passage. I do not think that the primary point of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is to teach us a pattern of resisting temptation. Though you can see the secondary application of that. You can see the importance that God's word would have in us against any temptation. And so I, just, I just want to call our attention to that because it's not as if we can somehow just throw out a few scripture verses in the air from recall and think that we're going to overcome any temptation that comes our way. Now, it certainly is a good tool for us. We need to be reminded that we are in need of Christ. This text here, primarily, is to show us that our hope in this life and our hope in the face of temptation, our hope in the midst of sorrow, our hope in the midst of trials, our hope in the midst of death is Jesus himself. I love what Pastor Thabidiano Bile said about this text. He said, however well we know the word of God, let us not begin to think we know it so well that we don't first need to flee to Jesus, our high priest, who has overcome the tempter on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, the point for us here is namely that Jesus is the true son, that he is the triumphant son, therefore we should look to him. Trust him. He didn't endure these temptations merely for us to have an example to follow. I mean, no man could face the temptation Jesus faced in the wilderness and have come out victorious. Jesus did, you can't. So when you're tempted, when you're tested, when you're feeling defeated, when you're feeling the trials coming upon your life, lift up your weary head and look to the serpent-crushing Savior who triumphed in the wilderness and who will go to a cross and be raised three days later from the dead to secure your redemption. He is the righteous and faithful one who did not fall. That is the primary application from this text. Look to Christ, he wins. It's that simple. Look to Jesus, led by the Spirit, victorious over the devil. Look to him, he is the triumphant savior. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14 says, the writer there says, since then we have had great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, the good news for us from Luke chapter four, the primary point of this text is that Jesus didn't ring the bell. He stayed the course. He didn't cave to the pressure and the weaknesses of his own flesh and tempted by the devil to abandon his father. And he didn't just, this is not just Jesus persevering through his own hell week. What we see here is that Jesus took hell straight on. He looked the devil in the face and said, no, thank you. There is one and only one that I serve. And it's by my faithfulness to him and his mission that he has called me to, that that hope will be given to this world. Friends, this is the good news. 
Jesus is the mighty warrior who fights for the freedom of his people. And not even hell can stop him. He is the triumphant savior. He is the victorious one. And our hope can be fully and firmly in him. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this word. We're grateful for this great picture of our Savior, the one who came and the one who stayed the course. Lord, even when he was tempted, he did not waver. When he was tried, he did not succumb to the tactics of the enemy, but yet stayed faithful, trusting your providence, enduring the test for the victory of his own people. Father, we're grateful that through faith in Jesus that we can find victory, that we can find hope, and that we can know that you are good so that no matter what trial or temptation or testing we may find ourselves in this world, Lord, we can look to the one who was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin, that our hope is firmly rooted in him and not ourselves, not our ability, but our hope is first and foremost in the one who endured temptation on our behalf and came out victorious. Father, we thank you for such a triumphant, glorious Savior. We thank you for this great hope. Lord, a reminder to us all, even now, as we think about these wonderful things, a reminder that salvation is not ever dependent upon us, our own ability, our own strength, our own capability. It's fully, fully, fully dependent upon the one who came and triumphed in our place for our sake, to your glory. Father, we thank you for this good news. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.